not a prideful woman. And, and? And I am able to admit when I'm wrong. Oh. And I I owe the good people of an hour of your life an apology. Because last week, I was wrong. Last week? Uh-huh. Um, last week, I said that Brood X was a lie. Oh. Brood X is most certainly not a lie. And Brood X has come out in force this week. So I apologize. Yay, yay for Brood X. So I apologize to all those who who may have taken me very seriously when, when I said that Brood X was not real. Because, man, I've heard people say that they are just like huge swarms on the highway and all kinds of crazy stuff. You're listening to An Hour of Your Life, by the way. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we had to drive down to Kentucky. And as you were driving down Interstate 75, Brood X was so loud, you could hear Brood X through the car window Mm -hmm. driving the legal speed limit through 75. You could hear Brood X. Oh, they're very loud. loud. Yeah, they were really loud. You could get hearing damage, I hear. I cicadas. Yep. I believe it. But that's another story. We are going to pick up where we left. Oh, not last. Yeah, I guess it was last week. No, 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 we're, no, no. No, we're going to pick up. No, I was talking about Brudex. That was last week, but we are not talking about last week's episode. Um, we are talking about the week before. We talked about the Turpin family, and we're going to pick that up this week. Uh, we did want to take a week off because it, it was a really heavy episode, um, one of our heavier ones that we've talked about. And so we wanted to give you guys a break from a little bit of ooh and talk about the end of the coronavirus last week. But now we're back into it. Um, this will probably be a little bit of a shorter episode, but that's okay because we went a little bit long last week. Oh, coronavirus. Yeah, well, we took a little bit of... <laughs> <laughs> Some people liked it and some people didn't. We'll just leave it there. So, mm, well, yeah. When we last left the Turpin family, 17-year-old Jordan Turpin had snuck out of her house in the early hours of the morning after she discovered that her family was planning on moving yet again. Now, remember, they had bound, bounced back and forth kind of between California and Texas, um, and that's going to come into play a little bit later on. Jordan had an old cell phone, which she used to call 911, Dozens of police had come to rescue her and her 12 siblings, arresting her mother and father in the process. When the officers first arrived at the home, David and Louise Turpin managed to begin unchaining their kids before the door opened, but Jonathan Turpin was still chained. After releasing Julissa and Joanna, Jessica had thrown the chains and padlocks into a closet. About 45 minutes after the police arrived at the house, The pajama-clad children were taken one by one into a police van. Upon arrival at the Paris police station, officers fed the severely malnourished Turpins as medics started drips with antibiotics, vitamins, and nutrients. Blood samples were taken to make sure they were all David and Louise's biological children, although honestly that seems a little unnecessary because they all look just alike, and they they all look a lot like their mom, actually. And the siblings never mentioned their parents during the next several hours of questioning, but they actually did ask about the family dogs. Hmm. Well, that afternoon, Deputy Manuel Campos sat down to talk with Jordan Turpin. Although she was 17, Campos said 
that she had the mental capacity of somebody a lot younger than that. Her hair appeared to be unwashed, and she appeared not to bathe regularly. She had a lot of dirt on her skin, and it, to him it looked like it was just caked on. Jordan talked about how the kids were required to call their parents mother and father because it was more Bible days, more like Bible days. Mother, Jordan said, had been yelling at 13-year-old Jolinda the previous morning, telling her that she was worse than the devil. And that greatly upset the deeply religious girl, who also disclosed that she and her siblings typically spent 20 hours a day in their bedroom. Can you imagine? And they had to ask permission to leave to go to the bathroom. Mm. I don't know. It's pretty strict. They weren't allowed to leave the room without their mother's permission, and that if Jordan tried to open the window to get some relief from the stench, she would be severely punished. In addition to being chained up, Louise punished her children by knocking on their heads, pulling hair, hitting and smacking them in the face as she pushed them around the room. Jordan called it pitching. She would say that her mom pitched them around the room. So if you can picture almost like I think of like a wrestling move, you know, where wrestlers would like get each other by the hair and then use that to throw the other wrestler across the ring. Now, we just watched uh, UFC. (laughs) Yeah. And they weren't uh, grabbing hair. But there was a lot of eye gouging. There was. There was a lot of eye gouging. So but that's what I picture when Jordan says that her mom would pitch them around the room. Mm. Mm. Not a good thing to do with your kids. Jordan said that once her mother had choked her for watching a Justin Bieber video on her eldest sister Jennifer's cell phone. She said that she knew they were in the year 2018 and that they were in the first month of the year, but she had no idea what the names of the months were. Can you imagine that? It's unbelievable to me. Yeah. She had only been to the doctor once in her life and never to the dentist. Jordan alleged that the siblings were given one meal a day because they slept for 15 hours a day. Their meals consisted of either peanut butter or bologna sandwiches or a frozen burrito. Now, I like all those things. Yeah, but if that's all you ate literally your entire life. Um, Jordan said at one point... Yeah, and I wasn't even saying that was like good. I'm just saying I like that, but not every single day. Yeah, Jordan said at one point that um, she had had so many peanut butter sandwiches that her body was almost unable to digest them anymore. Like that's how often they really only had these. And sometimes the bologna sandwiches would have um, jalapenos on them. Weirdly. So uh, yeah. So they, yeah, this was it. Three things. I don't do spice like that anyway. Yeah. So in a separate interview, 13 year old Jolanda Turpin told investigators that she didn't know the difference between a state and a country. Okay, so I remember when Kellen was little, she, mm-hmm. like, two, she knew the town and she knew the state. Yeah. And she, she was able to comprehend that. Yeah, Joe Linda thought, um, so they had lived in Texas. At this point, they were living in California. Um, Joe Linda thought that Texas was a country. Yeah. And I mean, 13. Kellen, like, Kellen got that confused when she was two. Yeah. But once you explained it to her, she got it. Yeah. Okay, so she said that... She had a kindergarten education and knew the alphabet up to letter T, but really wanted to go ahead and do first grade work. Yeah. That's just, I don't, it, this is hard to imagine. It's okay. really, it's, yeah. it's hard to talk about. I'm sure yeah. it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Jolinda said 
that it had been her mother's idea to name four of the older siblings as hall monitors to spy on the younger ones, and that her last bath had been on Mother's Day in 2017. Now keep in mind, this is January 2018. And keep in mind also that those hall monitors, remember we said in the previous episode that they, um, the parents had left for like four years and that the kids were living by themselves. And so these quote unquote hall monitors um, were expected to carry out punishments on their siblings and that if they didn't, that they would be locked in cages and they would be the ones punished. Well, but dear old dad would bring him food like a couple yes. of times a week. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they, they would weren't know. totally abandoned. Right. Yeah. Okay. So during Jonathan's interview, the 22-year-old said, 22-year-old, can yeah. you imagine? Said that he had been restrained for the last six years. It started out as ropes. But he said that uh, when they discovered that he could chew through the ropes, his parents moved on to metal chains. For six years. Yeah. uh, Jonathan completed third grade. What does that really mean? And was done with school. Okay, Jethro Bodine and the Beverly Hillbillies. (laughs) He at least got his sixth grade education. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was done with school. Guessing they were maybe 10 grade levels when they... When asked. Yeah. They asked him, how many grade levels do you think they are? And he was like, I don't know, maybe 10. Yeah. He he didn't know. He had no idea. And he was 22. And that's the thing. I think Jonathan, though, is the one that was able to go to the community college. I don't know. Some of the younger kids talked about how David and Louise would buy pies and various other treats, enjoying some in front of their emaciated children, and then leaving the rest to rot. Okay. When four of the kids got caught stealing food out of the pantry just before Christmas 2016, they were forced to watch as the rest of the family celebrated Christmas while the other four were excluded. Yeah, and I I don't know what Christmas looks like. I mean, we, we mentioned last time that they would buy toys, so I'm sure that they spent, like, tons of money on really fancy toys and, like, really nice things for the kids, and they would get to unwrap them, and the, but then they would never get to play with and them. And they could go to Disney. They did get to go to Disney, but one of the things that I read said too that that might not have been like an enjoyable experience to them. It probably wasn't. Because they were so overwhelmed with all of the sensory, like, so, you know, they're used to being in their room for 20 hours a day and sleeping for 15 hours a day. And when you take somebody out of that environment and throw them into Disneyland, that's like total opposite. So I'm sure they were really overwhelmed. Um, after their interviews, the siblings were all able to shower and were given a change of clothes. All of their clothing was very heavy and soiled with blood, dirt, and human waste. The seven adult children, which that we're going to have to kind of distinguish a little bit between, they're all, um, you know, there are seven of them that are adults, but when we say adult, we mean only in the legal sense of the word. There was nothing adult-like about them at all. The seven adult children were placed under a 5150 hold, which enabled them to be held for up to 72 hours as dependent adults. They were all so small that they needed children's sizes, all of which were purchased by the Corona Regional Medical Center staff. The hospital CEO turned to the Corona Chamber of Commerce, and within hours, the chamber had dropped off bags of clothing, shoes, toiletries, and games. More and more donations flooded into the hospital where the seven siblings had their own wing with a round-the-clock guard. 
I think by the time everything was said and done, people had donated over half a million dollars hmm. um, worth of either money or stuff. Um, more, uh, uh, they had to be taught how to brush their teeth in their hair, and the kid, the kids. Um, family, I guess, had blueberries, strawberries, and raspberries for the first time. Can you imagine that? First time. They've never had fresh fruit, I, like ever. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. But I can't even imagine what is going on. Maybe we'll get to it, but I wonder what type of psychological thing. Oh, yeah, we'll get to it. Okay. Um, the kids, who are actually 20-somethings, were scared the first time they saw a tomato. And they only tried one after they saw a nurse eat it, which is kind of, I wonder why it was a tomato. Like, what was it about a tomato that was scary to them? I don't know. The worst of them, 11-year-old Julissa, had a body weight percentage of just 0.01 compared to a healthy percentile of 5 to 85. Okay, can you explain that just a little bit? Um. It's just the body, your percentile, the oh, body okay, weight like percentage. A percentile. Is, yeah. So, like, their, her percentile, though, was 0.01. Okay. I get it. A normal, like, a healthy 11 year old would have a body weight percentile of 5 to 85. In the 5th to 85th percentile. Right. Okay. She's at 0.01. Okay. Her mid upper arms, she's 11, were the same size as a four month old baby. Her potassium and glucose levels were so low that her heart was damaged and her liver was damaged from malnutrition. Luckily, it kind of came out in um, the some of the court proceedings that a lot of some not I wouldn't say a lot some of the um, issues that the that the um, siblings all went through could be treated with vitamins and nutrients and stuff as far as like the physical part of things. But not all of them. Um, Julissa suffered from stunted growth due to her extreme environment with her body height, um, a percentile of 0.79 compared to a healthy 5 to 95. So the 5th to 95th percentile is what is healthy. She was in the 0.79th percentile. Mm. So not even the one first percent. Yeah, that's really low. Some of the other children suffered from issues such as scoliosis, muscle wasting and speech deficiency. And 15 year old James told doctors that he wanted to kill animals and thought that his dreams could tell the future. Okay. That's pretty troubling from right. Yeah. From what we know from other stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, it didn't take long for the press to find out about the Turpin family. So this is um, like a press release, I guess, or something that had um, been reported in the news. Early Sunday morning on January 14th, 2018, a 17-year-old juvenile escaped from her residence situated in the 100 block of Moore Woods Road, Paris, and managed to call 911 from a cellular device she found inside the house. The teenager claimed her 12 brothers and sisters were being held captive inside the residence by her parents and further claimed some of her siblings were bound with chains and padlocks. When police officers from the Paris police department and deputies from Riverside County Sheriff's department met with the juvenile. She appeared to be only 10 years old and slightly emaciated. After a brief interview with the female, they contacted 57 year old David Allen Turpin and 49 year old Louise Anna Turpin at the residence where the teenager escaped. Further investigation revealed several children shackled to their beds with chains and padlocks and dark and foul smelling surroundings 
but the parents were unable to immediately provide a logical reason why the children were restrained in that manner. Deputies located what they believed to be 12 children inside the house, but were shocked to discover that seven of them were actually adults, ranging in age from 18 to 29. The victims appeared to be malnourished and very dirty. All 13 victims, ranging from the age of 2 to 29, were transported to the Paris station and interviewed. Both parents were detained and transported to the station for further investigation. Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services arrived to assist in the investigation. The victims were provided with food and beverages after they claimed to be starving. The six children were eventually transported to the Riverside University Hospital System for medical examinations and were admitted for treatment. The seven adult children were transported to the Corona Regional Medical Center for an examination and admitted for medical treatment. Both parents were interviewed in this matter and subsequently transported to the Robert Presley Detention Center. They were booked for violations of California Penal Code Section 206, Torture, and Section 273A, Child Endangerment. Bail was set at $9 million each. Anyone with additional information regarding this investigation is encouraged to contact Master Investigator Tom Salisbury at the Paris Station. So that's the AP, uh, the Associated Press um, release that went out across the wires. Mm. That's really, uh, I mean, that kind of really summed it up. There's yeah. going to be more to this, yeah. So obvious, obviously, all the neighbors, family members, and others who had had interactions with the Turpins said that they didn't know how bad things were. They just thought that the family was a little odd. Which, I mean, yeah, obviously they're going to say that, but I don't know if I believe that. I don't know. I don't know. The town refused to use the Turpin surname, instead calling the siblings the Magnificent 13. The Chamber of Commerce raised over $200,000 for them. Suddenly, there were lots of questions for the California Department of Education and the city of Paris. One, like, why hadn't CDE, the California Department of Education, done a single visit to the Sandcastle Day School? And if you remember, that was the school that uh, that dear old dad Allegedly, yeah. He was started, the principal yeah. of the Sandcastle the, Day School. Yeah, he declared himself principal. Yeah, and they were supposed to come out and inspect every year. They hadn't come out once. Why hadn't the city followed up on the few phone calls from neighbors about animal issues or the one or two times that the injuries have been bad enough to go to the hospital. Which we talked about last week. There was like a dog bite, right? Yeah. And then they had just animals like kind of, one of who was it, like a pig or something? It got loose. Some One of their animals had gotten loose on somebody else's property and they called the police. Yeah. I mean, all the signs were there if oh, yeah. someone would have just followed up. Why, when the kids were in school and they were so obviously abused, did none of the mandated reporters say anything yeah i, that, no, I mean there, the there's so many failures here on so many different levels jess was it Gen jennifer jennifer's teacher if you remember last episode jennifer's teacher had to ask her to take her hair out of a hershey wrapper that she was using for a scrunchie she was obviously not clean like she was obviously not being treated well at home this woman was a mandated reporter and she never she, it never raised a red flag. Like, she never said anything. Mm. I don't know. There, there was legislation introduced by Jose Medina that would require all homeschools to register with their counties instead of just with the states. Now, this met some opposition because, well, this idea would make it easier to keep tabs on everything, 
but the opposition came from homeschool parents to uh, who lobbied to have that part removed, that part of the bill removed. There was a part that said yeah. that there was an inspection yeah. and that the county could come in and inspect the home, and um, which obviously was not like... I mean, that would have prevented a lot of this stuff, I think. Um, but the homeschool parents wanted their a lot. I mean, I think a lot of homeschool parents want to keep their freedoms um, and don't want uh, public education infringement or whatever on what they view as their religious freedoms or whatever. And so, I, you know, I, I kind of get it. But at the same time, I feel like, I don't know. Like what, they would understand a little bit. Yeah. Well, to the best of our knowledge is no changes have been made. In California, literally, all you have to do is remove your child from school. To remove your child from school is to file an affidavit, maintain an attendance list, course list, and an immuniz- immunization list <laughs> or other uh, re- religious exemption paperwork. Instructors are supposed to provide their qualifications but there are no specifics as what those qualifications are expected to be. But that's that's not unusual because you don't have to have a teaching certificate right. to be qualified to homeschool your kids. Right. I remember being in Germany one time, and, and the, there are curriculums that are approved curriculums by the state Correct. to do this. Okay, and that's all fine and dandy, but I remember one case in Germany Someone, for whatever reason, just made their own curriculum up, mm-hmm. and it came time for the kid to graduate and go to college, and there was no, they they didn't they have didn't a high have school degree. Yeah. Yeah, because it wasn't approved, and, you know, they just thought, well, we'll just teach what we think we, you know, what we want them to learn. Yeah. And so they came to... Over in Germany, it's Dodds, Department of Defense Schools, and they said, can you please award our kid a high school diploma? And they were like, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do because it doesn't meet any standards or any curriculum. We can't do it. And so the parents really just messed that kid up. Well, and it seems like that's what's going on still in California. There have been zero changes. You don't have to have an approved curriculum. You just have to have a curriculum or a course list. It doesn't have to be approved. It doesn't have to, like, there's nothing. You basically just have to file paperwork saying this is what we're doing. There's no, I mean, there's the inspections. Don't they have to meet any state standards? Like so many hours, so many credits of math, so many credits of English or anything like that? It doesn't. It doesn't seem like you have to. In all of the research that I did, um, it sounds like all you have to do is just provide them what they're planning, what you're planning on teaching. So it's interesting because California, um, I always think of California as a really liberal state, but the homeschool lobby in California is super strong and doesn't want the federal government in, infringing on anything. So they don't want to give any information um, and, and they're a very powerful lobby. So there have been no changes at all from hmm. the time that David Turpin was, you know, able to basically start, remove his kids from the world and start his own school. Yeah. There's they you and can declare still do himself that. dictator. I mean, principal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now all I'm just, this is California. All of the States have different rules regarding homeschool, but California's rules are some of the most lax in the country. Hmm. 
Now, soon after David and Louise Turpin were arrested, Riverside County District Attorney Michael Hestron announced that he was filing 75 felony charges against them, including 12 counts each of torture and false imprisonment, um, seven counts each of cruelty to a dependent adult, six counts each of willful child cruelty, and one charge against David of committing a lewd act by force or fear for that time that he pulled Jordan's pants down and pulled her onto his lap that we talked about last week. Two-year-old Jana was not included in the torture and false imprisonment charges. We said there were 12 counts of torture, 12 counts of false imprisonment, um, because she was, by all accounts, treated much better than her siblings. She was relatively clean. Um, She was not mistreated as badly, although by the time that um, the police had come and rescued them, uh, um, Louise had already started to like flicker in the head and pull on her ears and her hair and stuff. So she was starting to see some of the abuse, but it wasn't nearly to the extent that her siblings were. Uh, bail was set at $13 million for each defendant, which ended up being $1 million per child. David and Louise both had their each had their own team of public defenders because according to the law, it would be a conflict of interest if they were represented together. Hmm. I wonder how they figured that. David's attorney, David Mocker, requested that the judge ban all film or electronic coverage of the trial proceedings, but Judge Michael B. Donner said, I'm told the coverage of this case literally spans the globe and that photographs, people's comments, editorials, etc., have been out there in the news for a very long time. So I can't find the electronic coverage of the arraignment today will be as prejudicial as suggested as the de- by the defense. So he said, nope, bring that- them on. Cameras can come in. It's fine. Okay. I don't remember seeing this on TV, though. I do. Um, and one of the things, though, is that there were there was something else kind of going on at the same time. So it made big headlines briefly, but that I want to say maybe this was an election year. I no, it couldn't have been 2018. No, it wasn't an, it election, was an election year. year. Um, but there there was something else going on at the time that it this kind of it got like a blip for about a day or two, and then. And what I remember most is David's haircut. Yeah. He he does look odd. Dorky Captain Kangaroo haircut. Captain Kangaroo. Yeah. 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 Well, the kids slowly, uh, things kind of start to improve for the kids here. Yeah. Um, Each, each one of them received an iPad and free dental care for life. In addition to new clothes, toys, and other material goods that were either donated directly or purchased with donated funds. But, it's not just the material stuff here. Right. The boys got their first haircuts, and Joshua and Jonathan donated their hair to Locks of Love. The medical staff at Corona Regional, Regional Medical Center, where the adult children were being treated, grew very close to their patients. One nurse was brought to tears when she met Jessica Turpin and discovered that she was the same age as Jessica. The physicians had been handpicked to treat the Turpins because, as their primary doctor explained, we were the first stage of their in- introduction to the outside world. Child trauma expert Allison Davis Maxson explained the dif- difficulties of treating the psychological damage done to the children. Okay, so this is, um, I'm going to read directly from um, John Glatt's book that we're kind of referencing for this entire um, series. Uh, so, but I, you know, 
this she gives such a really good explanation that I had a hard time kind of paraphrasing this. So um, Dr. Maxson said, healing takes time and is a process. You can't go back and erase early deprivation, neglect, and trauma. We are wired from the moment we enter the world to get our needs met through human connection. And early deprivation starves all aspect of our social and emotional development, especially impacting brain development. Think about how we learn language. We learn that through relationships, we don't learn that in isolation. When children, especially at early ages, experience severe deprivation, they don't learn this dance of attachment. They may struggle to learn how to communicate their needs and or feel valuable enough to get emotionally close to others. So what you'll see is social emotional awkwardness or a stuntedness. They may struggle in being able to read and attune with what other people are feeling, being an awareness of what they themselves are feeling and why they are feeling it, being able to communicate their emotional and attachment needs, thoughts, and feelings to other people requires a basic trust, self-awareness, and a willingness to take risk. Um, she said this process of treating the siblings would be a really long one because their physiological si systems and development had not progressed in a normal way. And this is kind of what we were talking about a little bit before of, um, you know, we can treat some of their physical damage, but their social emotional um, is really stunted. She said children or childhood development occurs sequentially. Children first learn to sit up, then crawl, then stand, then walk and then run. Our social emotional skills are similar in that children first learn to make sounds, then words, then string words into sentences, then identify what they need or what they are feeling. And then they communicate what they are feeling to people they trust. Our brains and bodies are built to develop and learn like that. So when the windows of opportunity diminish or close, the next part of what we need to learn can't sit on top of a particular skill set or competency because we were deprived of those experiences needed to master or learn those skills. So children who have experienced extreme and chronic deprivation can be 15 years old or 20 years old, and in some ways, emotionally and socially function like they're three or five or eight years old. It's not something you can just bounce back from. Mm. I, I, mean, I thought that was a really good explanation of kind of what the kids, kids meaning really the adults, are going to be going through for the next years because they didn't develop mentally and emotionally properly the way that you need the way the human brain is designed to develop. So I guess maybe the younger ones will have a little bit when I say easier time yeah. to readapt or to adapt to the world. Yeah, and the younger ones will have a better time because they've not been conditioned or like in, in my mind i'm thinking brainwashed yeah they're more malleable i think your final um like your brain is not fully developed until you're about 25 so even some of the older like jordan at 17 she still is able to kind of bounce back a little bit Jana, who's two is probably going to be just fine she may have a little bit of failure to thrive. She may like develop a little bit more slowly, um, but she's probably going to be just fine versus Jennifer, who at this point is like 29. Her brain is pretty well set. Like it is what it's going to be. And she's at the level that she's going to be at probably somewhere between eight to 10 years old. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's, you're right. The ones that are younger are going to have a little bit easier time functioning in society. 
Now, David and Louise were given three-year restraining orders prohibiting them from having any contact with their children. Okay, three years at this point restraining because they've not been convicted of anything. Correct. So I wonder, are they out on bail or anything? No, because remember, they had $13 million. $13 million. Yeah, nobody's going to post that for them. The adult siblings were appointed a public guardian by Riverside County and moved into an assisted living home after being discharged from the hospital. Now, this is going to get a little disjointed here um, on the timeline. I don't have like specific days or anything, um, but it all kind of is happening within a few months of each other, weeks of each other. Uh, The minors were split between two foster homes. They didn't want to get them split up at all, but... It's hard for one person to take in six kids, especially six kids that have experienced a trauma and are not developmentally there. Aunts and uncles were making the round on the news circuit, which, uh, um, along with Kent Ripley, who was the Elvis impersonator. The Elvis guy, yeah. Yeah, who had conducted their vow renewals. And it seemed like everybody wanted custody, although why they wanted custody is kind of up in the air. Is it, they just wanted the publicity who knows it's hard to say because they were i mean they were on everybody kind of came out of the woodwork on both sides of the family on david and louisa's side like louisa's sisters both wanted custody david's brother who um i think i mentioned it in the last show that um he had written a like a fasting handbook and was pretty extremist like religious extremist himself so who it, it's really unclear about whether they wanted it for attention or whether they wanted the kids because they knew money was going to come with the kids who, or if they really genuinely were concerned about them. Yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to say, and I don't think anybody can really, you know, say one way or another. Who knows? Well, anyway, meanwhile, just two weeks out of their captivity, the Turpin children were beginning to thrive. So they're they're doing okay or... They're doing better. Yeah. Well, I mean, they can't really be doing much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And news is starting to get out. So once that it be found, it was found out that they like John Denver, the late singer's estate sent over an entire box of his music collection. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. When Fender Guitars found out that they were all left to sing and listen to music, uh, Fender donated 13 acoustic guitars to them. They were... um, they were trying new foods like little soup, fish, and lasagna, which it's got to be strange. Could you imagine just their taste? Yeah. To try to taste it. I mean, in a way, it could be exciting. Uh, yeah. But then at the same time, like I, if they were afraid of a tomato and two, I wonder how, um, the, you know, when I read that they were trying fish, I kind of wondered a little bit what they thought because their taste buds, I would think, like their sense of taste is probably super stunted too. You yeah, know, well, I mean, never... just like you, you were talking about the sensory yeah. overload, well, just the the taste overload must be yeah. I would almost overwhelming, think I would that think. they would need to start out with like bland foods and kind of work your way up to well, fish they, and lasagna. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. And they also really enjoyed making artwork and crafts for the staff at the hospital. After about a month after Jordan had escaped, the DA announced that he intended to put some of the siblings on the stand to testify against her parents. They were being paired with a highly trained victims' rights advocates, and they had uh, the kids had their own lawyers. The older and younger siblings hadn't seen each other in person since they had left the house, 
but they communicated almost daily through Skype. Mm. So they all had different goals and aspirations. Some wanted to go to college and some wanted to pursue careers. Now, David and Louise's preliminary hearing was set for May 14th. On February 26th, the Dr. Oz show flew Louise's sisters, Elizabeth and Tricia, out to visit her in prison. And this is what Elizabeth especially seems to really kind of court the spotlight a little bit. Uh, I see her more often than I see anybody else in on TV or in interviews or whatever. After a two-hour-long visit, the sisters reported back that Louise was in complete denial about the situation. She's living in a fantasy world, said Elizabeth. As I was talking to her, I realized that it's all fantasy. She's living in a movie. She's rewriting her own story. The women said that Louise had cried at first, but were happy to see them. Um, She never asked about her children, but she did ask them to go visit David because he was sad that he never had any visitors. Poor David. I know. Interestingly, when Elizabeth and Trisha agreed to visit David, it was a completely different experience. They said he sobbed uncontrollably, apologizing again and again, saying that he wanted to come clean about everything that he and his wife had done, but he wasn't allowed to. Like his lawyers basically said, don't tell anybody anything, which I thought was really interesting. Probably good advice for his lawyers. Yeah, I. this was kind of, though, when I started hearing about this kind of stuff, it made me stop and think, and we'll get into this a little bit. Um, it begs the question, who was the real mastermind here? Uh, because at one point during their intake interviews, one of the Turpin kids had said that it was Louise, not David, who was, quote, the big boss in charge. So all along, like you kind of made it, we kind of painted it out to be that David was the one who, you know, he married Louise when she was underage and he kind of maybe warped and manipulated her. That's what you were thinking. I, I'm not buying that. I mean, the kids were chained in the house. He didn't know. He didn't know they weren't getting fed except bologna and bananas or banana or peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. He knew exactly. He's, oh, he definitely knew, but... And he went along with it. He so did. he's just as guilty. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm not saying that he's not guilty, but I'm saying who is who was kind of the ringleader here? Because at first, you kind of think that it was David who warped Louise's mind and that she was afraid of him and that she just wanted to go along with him and like wanted to make him happy. But then I don't... I don't know. Their reactions to this whole thing make me wonder if Louise was like the psychopath. Oh, she may have been. And was the one that was encouraging David to Wait, do she, all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and I mean, to me, that's 100% plausible, but he's got to be just as sick and oh, warped abso- oh, to yeah. go along with it. So I don't give him any- No, I'm not giving him a pass. It's just interesting to think about. Um, which one was kind of the one who was orchestrating this whole thing? Now, after many months of... Well, if... I don't know. We got to stick on this one for a second because sure. she may have been orchestrating it, but again, you know he went up there was and helped chain the kids and tie the kids. Yeah. And he was the one bringing the, the food when they moved out for four years. 
he moved out for four years. Yeah, I I guess my question is though, like, do you think that one should be like the person who? It seems like Louise carried out most of the punishments as far as like the physical abuse. Should she be held more accountable for that than he is? And should she like if she, if she, if it was all her idea or no. mostly her idea and he was just kind of going along with it because either he was afraid of her or afraid of losing her or whatever, should she be punished more? I, they should obviously both be punished. But should she be punished more harshly? Should the one who came up with all of the stuff be punished more harshly, even though they both had a hand in it? I, I think that's your assumption that that happened. I, no, his complacency it's they, just they, as bad. is just as bad. It's, it's just as bad. Interesting. I would love to hear what uh, listeners think. Like, do you agree with Steve that they're equally as bad or that if... If it could be found, whichever one of them it was. That well, we're going to get on eventually to what their sentences were, so we'll see what the judge thinks. Right. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of discussion in, in this point. Now, after many months of legal wrangling, David and Louise Turpin pled guilty to 14 felony counts each. On That's down from 75. So they really negotiated their way down big time. Not um, that it's going to matter. Well, it kind of might because uh, on February 22nd, 2019, those counts included torture, false imprisonment, and child endangerment. Um, and and I say it might matter um, between 14 and 75 as far as like the time that they're going to be able to serve. You're talking about like parole when they'd be mm-hmm. eligible for parole? Yep. Well, they both got life in prison. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know California's system, but I mean, it's not, you know. But they got the life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Well, that might be the same thing for any other crime. I don't know. I'd have to read up on California stuff. That that may not be unusual. I did see something that it basically is the same um, equivalent of first degree murder. They got the same... Uh, sentence is what you would get if you were convicted of like one count yeah. of first yeah, degree. Yeah, and that's murder. what I'm saying. So maybe it's common in the state of California to do to get a life sentence after 25 year eligible for parole. Mm. I'm trying to think back at Charlie Manson. Yeah, but I can't remember. I was just wondering if they had kept like the 75 instead of 14, um, if they would have been like life without parole, or does it really matter? It probably ma- makes a difference of what the charges were. Yeah. So I'm really curious too. I didn't see anywhere what the charges were that were dropped, but there were, there, I mean, there was a lot of them. I know, I think some of them were perjury charges. Um, and, and I'm not sure where those kids, that's all. There's a lot of, I mean, obviously, this was in 2019 is when they were sentenced. So it was like a year, a little we, over we just a year need, and a half. We just need a legal expert from California to yeah. straighten this one out. So it was like a year and a half of kind of going through the system and bargaining and back and forth and all of this and all of that. And probably the more boring aspects of the legal system um, where you kind of get into the, the finer details and splitting hairs as far as, well, is this really this or is this this charge or do we need to bring this charge up or what? 
I don't know. Like I said, we we need a legal expert from California to sort this one out. Yeah, if you're a legal expert from California, give us a shout. Give us a shout <laughs> on this one. But whatever, on April 19th, 2019, they both were given life sentences in prison. And as, as we said, with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Doesn't mean they're going to get it, no. but it means there's possibility. I thought that was really interesting. It happened on Good Friday. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of fitting. Yeah. Well, during the hearing, 30-year-old Jennifer and 27-year-old Joshua came forward publicly for the first time to give victim impact statements along with their support dog, Raider. My parents took my whole life for me, but now I'm taking my life back, said Jennifer. I saw my dad change my mom. Well, that kind of goes with there what is, you said. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. true. They almost changed me, but I realized what was happening. I fought to become the person I am. I'm a fighter, I'm strong, and I'm shooting through life like a rocket. Joshua, okay, Joshua, on the other hand, thanked his parents for instilling a sense of faith in God. This is the past, and this is now, he said. I love my parents, and I have forgiven them for a lot of things that they did to us. I have learned so much, and I've become so independent. He says now he's at college studying, become a software engineer. So how much I, was he stunted then? I, I, Joshua I mean, he may also be at school studying doesn't mean he's passing anything. Though. Right. Well, and Joshua was, was the one that was able to go to community college until he made a friend. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was so interesting that he thanked his parents. That, yeah, okay, they chained us to bed. They chained me to a bed for six years, but... But it made me a stronger person. I'm better for it but now. But thank you, mom and know. mother and father, for instilling in me the love of God. That's amazing to me. Like, that amazing that he was able to take that out of all of the... And, and it seems to be um, kind of something that all 13 of them... Well, maybe not Jana, she's two, but... Um, 12 of them at least seem to share is they have huge hearts. Everybody that hasn't come in contact with them says that no matter what they want, they want to give, like they have been, um, so, you know, they deserve so much, so much was taken from them, but they are so loving and so kind and they just want to give to people. Well, now wait a minute. Let's go back for just one second. Mm -hmm. The oldest girl, you said that she was kind of mentally at 10 years old. Right. Okay. But didn't we just see, is is this the same girl? Jennifer? Mm-hmm. Okay. That doesn't sound like a 10-year-old processing anything to me. So it seems like she did move on and she has become more fulfilling and more. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, she's 30. I don't know that she really is ever going to be fully like at a 30 year old. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, we can only speculate on that. Yeah. It's going to be, time is going to tell. I mean, this is still relatively new. This, you know, they, it was 2019 when their parents went to prison. It's 2021 now. So it hasn't been very long. Yeah. But I can't imagine. I saw my dad change my mom. Okay. That takes comprehension. That does. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, and, and she too. Um, but just that whole statement, they almost changed me, but I realized what was happening. Yeah. I fought to become the person I am. I'm a fighter. I'm strong. I'm shooting through life like a rocket. 
that's not a 10 or 12 year old. So she's obviously yeah. moved on and been able to developmentally develop and intellectually. A yeah. yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, but again, I'm no psychologist. Right. So I, I don't, don't know. No, yeah. Now, the most recent update on the adult children, um, I don't know anything about the minors because they're minors and they don't say any, like, there's nothing yeah. out there about them. But the adult children say that they made it through the pandemic just fine. Um, that's from their lawyer, which kind of makes sense. I mean, it it kind of it kind of sucks for them too, though. Like you, how bad does that? You get out of imprisonment for however many years of your life, only to be thrust back into quarantine during a pandemic. And California, from what I've read and seen, was a little bit more strict. Yeah, than a lot of the other states. So, but at least they were, you know, they were able to. Um, take showers when they wanted to. They were able to eat the foods that they wanted to. They they weren't chained to their beds. They weren't chained, but so um, they said it was kind of weird. Like they really got used to being out very quickly. So having to quarantine was and go back in was a little bit weird for them and a little bit disorienting. But honestly, they probably fared better during the pandemic than most people did because um, they had each other. Um, and they were, you know, they, well, people, I, we, we got to give people credit, people are a lot more resilient oh, yeah. than we oh, give absolutely. them credit for. I think a lot of psychologists make assumptions and they think, oh, this happened. But, you know, a lot of people go through a lot of stuff. You know, these kids are probably going to have PTSD for oh, the rest of absolutely. their lives, but they can still go through and function. It seems like they're getting there. Right. When I say they made it through better than most people did, I just mean that they probably had, you know, most people, if you're not able to go out and do things, you get bored. They had so much that they, to them, they had so much that they were able to do that they had never been able to do that. It probably was not a big deal to them. Like they were, and, and actually it might've even been kind of a little bit of a blessing in disguise of having to be quarantined because they weren't just kind of shoved out into the world. It was, you get some time alone in the house to accommodate to being, you know, adults and, and learning how to be an adult, but also, you know, you're not expected to go out into the world. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, they are living in various places in Southern California. Um, some of them are attending school and they're living pretty normal lives. Although, according to their lawyer, they are still adjusting to a more traditional lifestyle. Um, they're all reportedly happy and moving on with their lives. Now, this year, in 2021, David and Louise Turpin are now allowed to contact their children. So it's been the three years of their no contact order is up. Um, but there haven't been any, I haven't been able to find any reports of that happening. Ring. You've re- you're receiving a collect call from inmate at San Quentin State Penitentiary. Right. Will you accept the charges? Yeah. Or whatever yeah. state pen in California they're in. And I wonder, you know, do the kids want to talk to their parents and what, I mean, well, I, it's interesting. It, you know, with that many of them, there's probably some that do and probably yeah. some that don't. And what do they have to say to them? But, um, it, or do the, I would, from their reactions, it seems more like David might be more likely to call than Louise because he seems slightly more repentant than she is. So I wonder how the other prisoners are treating them. Mm. Are they in isolation? 
I don't think so. Not that I've heard. Or are they just in general population? I that I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something interesting. Um, I don't know if any of the none of the adult children have come forward publicly. Um, that might be something that happens years down the road or in a year or two down the road. But this is still, uh, I mean, it's still relatively fresh. Like I said, they, um, they, this happened in January of 2018 is when Jordan left. Um, and their parents were sentenced in April of 2019. And then a pandemic happened less than a year later in March of 2020. And so really think, I mean, it's been, it's pretty recent when you think of it in terms of that. Yeah. I'm not trying to be callous, but it wouldn't surprise me if in a couple years we don't see a book. Oh yeah. My life is a Turpin child or something like that. Yeah. Probably. I don't know that I would, that you would hear it from, I mean, of the 13 of them, surely one of them is probably going to write a book. Probably statistically, Memoirs I would think or something. Yeah, yeah. Statistically, I would think it would probably. I I think that if it were going to be anyone, um, my money is on Jordan, because Jordan seems to not. I don't want to say that she likes attention. I don't mean it like that, but like Jordan was the one who would have. Um, she would record herself singing and like post it on the internet and stuff like that. She was the one who was more into social media. Um, and was kind of more into into that kind of thing. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if Jordan Turpin at some point writes a book. I hope she does. Well, anyway. And I hope that it makes her a ton of money. Yeah. I, yeah, I hope it does. Yeah. But so it'll I be hope, interesting yeah. to see okay. what happens. So does this wrap up the Turpin family? Wraps up the Turpins. That's all the news that's fit to print. We don't know much about them. Um, we just kind of have to keep an eye on it, keep an eye on the news, see if they come out of the woodwork at some point in the future. Okay, so this week we didn't have our – we missed Saturday at Winans. Yeah, we missed our production meeting. Yeah, we, we, we went we down went to down to the down to the lake. Down to the lake. So I we missed that. So a we, heck of a sunburn. So we have not figured out what ne- next week's episode is. No. And we, we need to do that. We do, because we're already a day late. Yeah, so maybe we need to have a production meeting here. <sighs> we'll figure it out. Okay. All right. What Anything else? Uh, no, not really. Cicadas um, are out. Cicadas are out. Um, our interview with Nan Whaley, uh, mayor of City of Dayton, is out over on the 937 podcast. Check that out. Um, we got a new episode of that coming out every Wednesday night, Thursday morning. It's very late Wednesday night when we post them. So usually you'll want to listen to it Thursday morning. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Well, but it's out in time for, to find out what's going on for the weekend. Oh, sure. Absolutely. All right. So that's about it. So how do they get hold of us? You can find us at an hour of your life.com. Um, you can write to us there or you can just email us directly at alosthour at gmail.com. You can find us on all the social media platforms. And we absolutely love to hear from you. So please send us. No more hate mail. I thought that would be nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, so tell your friends, follow us, listen. You can find us on all the major platforms um, and, and write to us. We love to hear from you guys. All right. I guess that will pretty much wrap it up. Yeah. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.
Tell you one thing, next week we need to cheer it up some. <laughs> Our primary source this week was The Family Next Door, the heartbreaking imprisonment of the 13 Turpin siblings and their extraordinary rescue by John Glatt. Also this week, um, sources include the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and the Sun newspaper. 